Let me tell you a story, podcast number 121. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our guest today is Kathy Whitmore. Several years ago, I wrote a condensed version of her life story for a magazine. But on this podcast, Listeners have an opportunity to hear her talk in person about her journey. Welcome, Kathy, and thank you for your willingness to share your story. Thank you, Becky and Steve, for having me. We will start at the beginning. You and your siblings were raised in an Air Force family that moved from one end of the country to the other and even overseas. You didn't stay in one place very long. Other than that, by all appearances, Yours was a typical American family. Your parents loved God and country and family. Yet beneath that shiny veneer lurked a dark side that manifested in your behavior when you started pulling out your hair, not one hair at a time, but in chunks. To start off, I have a couple questions for you. How old were you then? And looking back, do you think that was a way to cope with being a military kid? who had an unsettled lifestyle, or was it a cry for help, or a way to distract yourself from emotional pain? Or maybe it was none of the above. I was 12 years old, and thinking about that, I believe that it was probably a subconscious cry for help. There was just some kind of satisfaction in pulling out my hair and inflicting pain on myself. Did your parents seek professional advice to help you stop pulling your hair? Yes, my father was um, over in Okinawa and my mother took me to a dermatologist in Denver, Colorado, Fort Simmons Hospital. And yes, they did. They diagnosed it as something totally different. They diagnosed it that I was not getting enough blood to the roots of my hair, so my hair was falling out. But my secret was nobody knew I was pulling out my hair and eating the roots. Oh, yum. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, you said it was, um, it's kind of like cutting. It's a way to deal with, with the pain. Did you have any other related issues like agitation, nervous twitches, nail chewing, um, or was that your only symptom? That was my only outward, tangible symptom. You seem to have hair now, or is that a wig? <laughs> so when did you, uh, when did you stop? Well, actually, Steve, no, it's not a wig. It's my own hair. But I think the things that drew me to a point of stopping to pulling out my hair was the humiliation that came from other kids at school that would make fun of me. And when I was on the playground, it was a country school, they would take their horses and run me up a playground and call me Baldy. 
and it had to do with the teacher when I went to school that semester. She made me take my scarf off and she wrapped me on the head with a yardstick, just humiliating me. And my mother, when we had class pictures, my mother allowed them to take pictures of me and my bald head and she passed them out to everybody. That's when I stopped. I, I can't say I actually physically thought about stopping, but that's when I stopped because the humiliation and embarrassment of it was just too overwhelming. And plus, I didn't have any more hair to pull out. Wow. <laughs> Maybe we can delve into the source of your pain. Um, I'm assuming that the, the dermatologist didn't figure out, did your parents figure out, or did you know what was going on and why you were doing what you were doing? I didn't really realize till many years later why I was pulling out my hair, but I can see it now as a, a cry for help. And there was really only one traumatic thing that happened in my life growing up that could account for such infliction of pain on myself. And it was due to abuse within the home, sexual abuse within the home. And it got worse. And I was afraid to manifest in any way, physically or any other way. So whatever pain that came from the abuse, it was kept silent within me. Having the teacher make you take off your scarf and your mother passing out your picture like that and all of those things, that had to cause more than humiliation. Did that then lead you to other things or did that, was that really what stopped your hair pulling or both? Well, I, I think that was what stopped the hair pulling, but they also had me on phenobarbital for my nerves. I was naturally a very outgoing, hyperactive child, you know, bouncing around and friendly with everybody. And that didn't stop my outward personality, but the phenobarbital had me in a dream world. And I probably was medicated with that for about a year. And I just lived kind of like in a fairy tale world. So that kind of took the edge off of it. And I just didn't think about pulling out my hair anymore because it was growing back and I didn't want to suffer anymore that other kind of abuse. Do you remember how old you were when the sexual abuse started and how long did it continue? I don't have any certain point that I remember it but when I was in about fifth grade I remember my sister and I having a conversation about the abuse. There were things that led up to that conversation and and I said something to her, or she said it to me, I don't remember who said it, but or is Daddy doing the same things to you that he's doing to me? And I remember that very vividly, and so at some, up to that point, there must have been some abuse, but I really don't remember it. But when I really remember when the abuse really started, when I was about 12, we left one city, and we went to live up north where my dad was stationed, and I remember the times that he would send everybody else in the family away and leave one of us alone, and the abuse just progressively got worse, you know. Uh, it was not something we spoke about. We didn't want to hurt our mother, so we didn't talk about it. You know, the little victims not wanting somebody else to be hurt by it. And it just got worse and worse to the point of rape. And we just, it grew worse for myself and my sister until about a year before we turned 18.
Two questions. One, you didn't tell your mother, but did she know what was going on? And the second question, did your father threaten you? No, my mother did not know. Um, We didn't tell her because we were controlled by fear. Uh, we, We loved our mother so much, we didn't want to hurt her. And we made a pact, my sister and I, not to tell her because we didn't want to hurt her. We didn't think we were victims. And my father used to beg us during the abuse, please don't say anything, please don't say anything, because you could tell he was operating in fear but lust. And we didn't say anything because he beat us. You know, spanking can be a spanking, but a beating can be a beating that can leave bruises on your body where you can't even play outside in shorts or go to your gym class in your gym suit because you have bruises, belt welts all over you. And that fear was a controlling factor. You say the abuse stopped at 18 when you became an adult and your father backed off. Um, At that point, did you tell your mom or anybody? Uh, Was this a lifetime secret? What happened next? Well, somewhere around, you know, getting close to legal age, uh, the abuse stopped, and I was still afraid. But anyway, I went on and graduated and got married, and it was still a closet secret. It was hidden, and nobody knew but me and my sister, as far as we knew. And... I had a little baby girl, and that part of me wanted that connection. There's always that desire to have a connection with your family. I always wanted to talk to my dad and say, let's just talk about this and tell me why, and then we'll forget it, and let's just go on and be a real family. That desire inside of me to still have a connection, that was my family. Even a a victim still loves their family, believe it or not. There was still this love and wanting that desire for that, that perfect little family. So one day, my mother came over to where I was living when I was married with my younger sister, who was 13, and I had an argument, and I just decided that I was, try- I was tired of this because I wanted to be able to go to my parents' house and not worry that my little daughter was going to be molested, and I figured out if my mother at least knew it, then my father would be afraid to even touch it, whether he believed it or not, to touch my daughter. And so... The argument escalated, and I finally broke down and told my mother that my father had been abusing me and my older sister. And my mother said, you're just mad. You're lying to get back at your dad. And I told her, no, Mom, it's the truth. My younger sister, who was 13, whom I did not know there had been any abuse, she stepped in and she said, yes, Mom, he has been doing it. I I suspect the abuse with her was just very minor compared to what my sister and I experienced and my mother said to my sister you're too young you don't know what you're talking about and my mother stormed off and she confronted my dad with the truth and my dad said I was lying because of whatever reasons I was angry and so that deception continued on and I don't know if my mother had an inkling of that truth throughout the years or not, I really think she was just so naive 
she couldn't see the signs because she was also a victim of abuse. At this point in your story, your family is calling you a liar. What did you do after that? Uh, My older sister, she refused to have anything to do with it. She was the victim of the worst, and I guess she wanted to run from it. Um, My mom told my dad. My dad said I was lying because I was angry at him. And they pretty much cut me off. And going forward in the marriage, I had another baby, and things were just not working out in the marriage and divorced. And I still had some relationship with my family but there was a big hole there. And having really basically been rejected, taken a stand for truth and been rejected, and the marriage not working out and two babies, I started smoking marijuana. And then one thing led to another. And, and then I got deeper and got into a drug addiction. Got remarried again, had another baby. Still doing drugs, another divorce. And at one point a few years down the road, my mom and dad just told me not to come around anymore, especially when they saw my name printed across the page against a big drug abuse that I'd been in. I was just a victim in that. But they decided they wanted no more to do with me at all. And they said that I destroyed the peace in their family every time I came around. So I was pretty much cut off. So your parents see your name in the headlines. (laughs) And they say they don't want anything else to do with you. Then did you continue um, after the drug bust? Did you continue doing drugs or being involved in that world? What happened next? It went from worse to worser. And I was not allowed in my parents' house. Um, You know, eventually I found somebody else, got married, had another baby. We were both still doing drugs. That marriage was not working out. Uh, because everything I was looking for was not in the marriage, in relationships, or in the drugs. But I, I went from just doing pills and marijuana, and I went to something a lot deeper, running drugs with a needle, and then to freebase and smoke and crack. And it was at that point, I had three children, and I was not there for those children when they went to school. The first day of school, I was not there. I was busy doing my drugs. So everything had taken a turn for the worst. And while everything seemed to be spiraling downhill in my life and maybe facing up to 15 years in the state prison for a felony conviction, the second time I got busted, um, things were going on in my mom and dad's house too. God was dealing with my dad about truth. And one day, I found out later on, my mom told me one day they, that her and my dad had been sitting on the swing outside in the front yard, and my dad's conscience had been eating away at his soul, and he finally broke down to my mother and basically crying like a baby said, I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I did it. And so then the truth was out. And so while his life is breaking down, Mine had already hit the rock bottom. Two divorces, in jail, facing two years of prison sentencing, um, everything taken out of my life. And you think, how far can low go? Well, for me, I did not know right around the corner there was going to be a big change in my life. 
Now I want to know, what was the big change? I have to take a step backwards. Uh, just going after I'd been incarcerated for a few days, there was a, just something so awesome. But going backwards first, the year before that, when I'd gotten busted the second time, this time I was guilty. And I'd been in and out of court with divorce proceedings, child custody from two fathers, the court proceedings for possession of felony paraphernalia and crack cocaine, facing um, 15 years in prison. I was, my life was just full of trouble that year with all those court hearings and everything going on and not knowing where my future lay. I, I just didn't have any hope. I couldn't wait to go to bed at night so I could sleep so the darkness could cover me and comfort me, but I couldn't sleep at night, and I couldn't wait for the morning to come because then it was daylight, and then all day long I was just like, oh, oh, I can't describe what I went through. But the peak or the highlight of the moment came when the final sentencing date came and I stood before the judge. They called him the hanging judge. I was a woman in a redneck county, a dry county, a woman with the hard drug in an election year in front of the hanging judge. And so my day finally came for sentencing about where my future lay. My lawyer told me, get a job, so I got a part-time job. The prosecuting attorney and my lawyer decided for probation only because the witness to the sale of cocaine the lady I sold it to got cold feet. Thank you, Lord. She got cold feet, and she didn't show up to bear witness against me. If she had, I would have been incarcerated for a long time. So I'm standing before the judge. The trial's done. And this judge was determined to make an example of me. My knees are shaking like jelly. Every bone in my body was disjointed. It was like I was standing before God on judgment day. My heart was pounding. Everything in my life was just falling to pieces, and I'm like jelly. And the judge asked me, and I didn't know I didn't have to answer him, but he said, because they were only going to charge me with felony paraphernalia and a gram of coke. And so it was five years probation is all they wanted. But the judge, the hanging judge, was determined to get to the bottom of the truth. And so he asked me, young lady, did you or did you not sell that cocaine? Something was happening to me. My dad was not the only one going through a deep, stirring, troubling, soul-searching, mind-boggling, inner working, coming to the end of myself. And I bowed my head, and I whispered, Yes. I couldn't lie anymore. Something was happening to me. I couldn't lie anymore, just like my dad. He couldn't lie anymore. And then the judge pounded that gavel on the desk. He slammed it on there, and he said, Speak up so the bar can hear you. And I, went, I lifted my head up, and I'm shaking like jelly, and tears are rolling down my eyes. And I said, Yes. Yes. And so he had them turn me to the crowd. I'd been in courtroom enough to know that when they turn you to the crowd and they start fingerprinting you, you're not going home. My kids were in school. Nobody expected me to be put in jail. 
my cat, my houseplants, my kids. Your Honor, I said, they're at home. He slammed that gavel down again. He said, I'm finished with you. I told you to get your house in order. My mind was so burnt out from the drugs, I didn't understand it. And as they fingerprinted me, my mom had, had come to court with me. And I said, Mom, she had my purse. I said, give me some Valium, Mama. So she gave me a handful of Valium out of my purse. And I said, my kids, Mom, my kids. She said, I'll, I'll get the kids. I'll get the kids. Can you imagine these young kids coming home? And where's my mother? How long was your sentence? And what was it like to all of a sudden be... Uh, your life's out of control. Somebody else is controlling your life, and including your children's lives. And like you said, your houseplants and your cat. And, um, your, especially your first few days, what was that like in jail? You know, I'd had a couple of little misdemeanors before that and spent a few little days in jail, but this time was felony time. And they gave me 364 days in the county jail and a year house arrest. If they had said 365 days, I would have gone down to the state prison. So it was a blessing in disguise, but uh, my life was just shattered. I had no hope. Uh, the kids, they went to their respective fathers, and here I am, no freedom. Somebody tells me when to get up, when to take a shower, when to take a bath. And I just, I cried, and I cried for the first three or four days because I had nothing now. I was totally isolated, left alone. Everything in my life had been taken away from me. You talked about a big change. What was it? Like I said before, I was going through all this troubling and these things where I, I just, I couldn't lie anymore. I, just something happened in me. And this little Baptist preacher came one day, a few days after I'm in jail, to talk to me about the Lord. And I've been to Sunday school and all that, but I never had an encounter with God. It was our religion. It was not a relationship. And I heard that somebody loved me with unconditional love. And I realized that God had unconditional love for me, and He is a God of miracles and signs and wonders. And through that little Baptist preacher talking to me, I found that I could have a personal relationship with the Lord, and I had an encounter with the Lord. And with that encounter came wonderful things. There came healing in my life, the broken pieces that would been shattered, you know, left in the gutter, nobody caring for me. I was picked up and loved, and not just picked up and loved, but the healing was poured into my life, and I had a hope and a purpose and a reason for living. And I found that. And I just fell in love with the Lord. <laughs> and I found that it was just something so awesome. And little did I know that all the stuff that my abuser, my father, had been going through, God was also doing a work in his life too because he was a victim of abuse and addiction himself, different from mine. But he was also a victim and just a couple years after that, he had a, an encounter with the Lord too, and his countenance was changed. And I thought that the short time that I had left with him, I thought, this is great. 
this is what it's like to have a real daddy. But his time had come, he was sick and he died. And my children, when I, I got out of jail, I was, God was gracious and I got my sentence. I got seven months off my sentence for good behavior. And the probation officer recommended an early release to me to the hanging judge. He told me, he said, I, I don't ever remember really re, um, recommending early release and I don't know this judge to get, give anybody early release, but I got seven months early release and got back out, had a whole brand new life, a whole new set of friends. God brought people into my life that helped me out, filled my freezer full of beef, took up love offerings to help me pay the bills because I was still on house arrest. Uh, got my children back one by one. God opened the door for me to get a good paying job. And that very year, um, all of my children had this encounter with the Lord. And my ex-husband and his wife had this encounter with the Lord. And it was just a, a tremendous, I can't even find words to describe what God had done for me. That is so cool. And it's um, so good to, to, I don't want to call it an ending, but a happy ending, because there's much more to your story. We can't tell it all here. But I have a feeling there was a great deal of forgiveness that uh, needed to happen within your family. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, there was a, a lot of forgiveness that went on. Some of it was immediate, and some of it, time, you know, brings healing, but there was healing in all areas of my family, different levels, and it's just pretty much gotten better because, you know, God, He picks up the broken pieces and He brings healing, and there's a lot of healing that still needs to go on, but um, He did pick up the broken pieces of my life and my children and my ex-husbands, and He gave us a purpose and a plan and a joy to live for Him. Speaking of your children, that had to be a real confusing time for them. Were they mad at you for not being there when you got home? And what kind of relationship do you have with them today? My children were ages 5, 12, and 13. And the youngest one, he was mad at me for a long time. He used to say, I hate you, Mommy, I hate you. And he wouldn't let me pick him up or hold him. But then one day, a preacher prayed for him for healing. And God touched his little heart and his little disposition. Little disposition changed to real, real sweetness and just changed. And the um, other two, the oldest son, God brought him home first. He was, he'd always been a difficult child to deal with. And I said to the Lord one day, why did you bring the hardest one home? I'm having trouble. I'm picking up the broken pieces of my life. And you bring the most difficult one for me to deal with home. And the Lord just spoke to me simply and said, because he needs you. That settled it. He was mine. I loved him. And God gave me something positive. Instead of looking at my own troubles, something positive to work with. And it was really a good experience. My daughter, she was having a good time living with her dad and getting what she wanted. But eventually, her heart turned back to home. And she came back home. And I was so fortunate to raise these children in a different environment than what they'd seen before, their mama with men and drugs. This time, they saw their mama going to church and worshiping God, and it changed life, and the power of it was operating in their lives. That is so cool to think about 
them seeing you one day as your old self and then you disappearing for a few months and then the next time they see you, you're a new person. So that's just um, pretty exciting. So thank you for sharing your story with us, Kathy. It's been years since I heard the shorter version. Good to hear your whole story, but also we, we just thank you for being so transparent. You talked about some really tough situations and tough times, and we're grateful for you sharing and hope that this is really encouraging to others who may have experienced similar difficulties. They're even not the same, but just to see how God can step in and change a life. Yes, um, you know, there's so many stories in between this little short story. You could write a dozen books on the other things, the things that you don't see, that the pain, the hurt, the joys, the victories. But it is the power of a changed life and a life that has hope and a future and a purpose for living. And that's what the Lord has done for me. He picked me up out of the gutter, worthless, shunned by the world, but he picked me up and he cleaned me up and he loved me. And he gave me a love and a purpose and a power to live the life that I was meant to live. And so I am just eternally grateful to what God has done and is doing in the rest of my family. One more thing before you go. I know that you work with addicted individuals now. And I'm curious to know how your life story impacts them. Well, as everybody knows that um, addiction is rampant in society now, and overdose is rampant, and it's a real touchy, touchy heart issue with other issues in this country. And we can't take care of them all, but God gives us experiences in life. So whatever we've come through, He takes it. So whatever He's brought us through, it's not just our story, but it's something we can share with the world. And so working in a, a drug rehab center, God has opened a door for me to share my story with people that there is hope, there is life. He is a God of signs and wonders and miracles, and He does pick up broken people's lives and gives us a purpose and a reason for living. And um, that's been an incredible place to work. And looking back on where I came from and where He's brought me, it's an incredible blessing to be able to work and give back. And some people listen, and some people get hope from it. So that's what my life is all about. Thanks so much, Kathy, for sharing about your life. Some real tough stuff you, uh, you shared with us. Appreciate that. And, and that you're using your experience to help others. That's great. That's going to conclude this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, remember, you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.